Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the economic consequences of the devastation and death being inflicted on Ukraine by Putin and speak with the former finance minister of Ukraine, Natalie Jeresko, who has had a distinguished international career in public service and private industry with over 25 years of successful management experience in government and business. She served as the Minister of Finance of Ukraine from 2014 to 2016 and previously served in the United States State Department as a chief of the economic section of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine from 1992 to 1995, where she was responsible for building a new economic relationship between the United States and the newly independent Ukraine. We'll assess the damage, death and destruction Putin is raining down on the civilian population and whether, since the Russian invasion is stalled, there could be a ceasefire and a peace agreement with Putin in power, even if others around him in the Russian government, intelligence services and the military might want it. Then we'll examine the role of religion in Russia's war against Ukraine following the recent split between the Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox churches and the cutting of ties by the Russian Orthodox Church in 2018 with Bartholomew I of Constantinople, the head of the world's Eastern Orthodox Christians. Joining us is John Burgess, who teaches at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, a Fulbright Scholar to Russia in 2011 and again in 2018 to 2019. He has travelled extensively within Russia, lived in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and made pilgrimages to some of Russian Orthodoxy's most important monasteries, parishes, and holy sites. He's the author of a number of books, including Holy Rus, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy in the New Russia. Then finally, we look into the extent to which the confiscation of Russia's $630 billion in reserves by the Biden administration might undermine the U.S. advantage of having the dollar as the global reserve currency, as others around the world consider the safety of their deposits and holdings. Joining us is Matthew Klein, the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. He was previously the economics commentator at Barron's and has also written for the Financial Times, Bloomberg View, and The Economist. And he's the co-author of Trade Wars, Our Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. And we will discuss his latest articles at the Overshoot, Mapping Banks, Russian and Ukrainian Exposures, and the Implications of Unrestricted Financial Warfare. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Natalie Jeresko, who has a 
distinguished international career in public service and private industry with over 25 years of successful management experience in government and business. She served as a Minister of Finance of Ukraine from 2014 to 2016 and was and previously served in the United States State Department as the Chief of the Economic Section of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine from 1992 to 1995, where she was responsible for building a new economic relationship between the United States and the newly independent Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Natalie Jurescu. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And clearly, there'll be extraordinary economic consequences of the devastation and death being inflicted on Ukraine at the moment. And it's just getting worse as Kiev's under siege. The UN did a recent uh, report talking about poverty and the possibility of even starvation. So given that the Russian offensive is stalled, do you think there's any way to get to Putin to stop this? Well, I honestly believe that the only way um, to get Putin to stop this is to put uh, massive economic pressure on Russia so that both his population and his elites, political and financial, feel it. And that means that the sanctions we've done to date are simply not enough. They're a good start, but they're not enough. There are um, a, a broad variety of additional incremental sanctions, and I think they have to go into place as quickly as possible, given the loss of life daily. So let's go through some of those, because the assumption is that the sanctions so far are quite crippling. No, I wouldn't say that at all. The only sanction that's had any effect uh, in reality is the sanctioning of the Central Bank of Russia, which froze a series of assets, which means that the government, the central bank no longer has the ability to support the currency exchange rate. And so you're seeing a devaluation of the ruble. But other than that, which is causing some lines outside of ATMs and currency controls in terms of not allowing people to exchange rubles into dollars, other than that, really the rest of these sanctions haven't had a real effect. The sanctions on the state banks have been too selective um, only a handful have been actually expelled from the SWIFT system. Um, MasterCard and Visa have left the, the market, but uh, the Russian system has its own credit card system, the MIR system, so they're functioning on the alternative system. Uh, if you look at trade, uh, the trade export controls and the trade, the ban of the uh, import of oil and other energy from Russia in the United States, the United States represents too small a portion of the energy exports to really be meaningful. We would need Europe to join the ban. So it's really, there, there are some steps, but it's all selective and incomplete. So before we get into what more could be done, is there any evidence that there's a backlash in the sense that the Russians are blaming this all on the West as, the, as McDonald's leaves the country, etc. Is Putin exploiting that idea of the West against us? Because that's always been his excuse, that he's not really murdering his neighbor. He's responding to Western encroachment. That's been his storyline from long before the war, for the last 20 years. And so nothing's changed. That is his story. And the majority, the, the, the surveys show around 70% or more, of people that remain in Russia are, are supporting that story for now. Uh, the middle class is leaving en masse. And so, you know, the people who are understanding that uh, Western companies are suspending or 
their business in Russia or divesting from Russia, and that that means something substantial going forward. Those that middle class has been leaving on any jet plane that would leave um, Moscow or leave Russia. So I think, you know, it's 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 not again even even with the case of McDonald's. So they stopped. They suspended their operations in the stores, but they still pay their employees for at least a year or two in some cases, some companies. So you're not you're not feeling the real um, the real pain uh, of the sanctions yet. So let's talk about what more should be done then. Well, first, they'd start with the banking system, which I think is the most immediate. And that means that we should be sanctioning and freezing the assets and expelling from SWIFT all state banks, all. And, and I mean full blocking sanctions, not just uh, partial sanctions. The second would be state-owned energy companies. The third would be state-owned commodity companies. And lastly, state-owned logistics companies. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the business side, that should be Russia and uh, Belarus, because Belarus is now a staging ground for uh, further attacks on Ukraine. The next element is the individuals that we sanction. And here we've been very slow in the United States to sanction the political elite. They've done more in Europe. What do I mean by political elite? I mean the entire legislature, Duma of Russia, the entire government cabinet of, of Russia, the National Security Council that took the decision with Putin. All of them and all of their families ought to have uh, sanctions applied. On the economic side, the top 100 oligarchs um, We've been very, very selective. Uh, Well-known oligarchs remain uh, unsanctioned and they're moving their assets. And so it's going to be harder and harder to have any real effect on them if we wait. So Putin today called in the United States ambassador to Russia and complained that it was unacceptable to call him a war criminal and a thug. So even though that is clearly the case, do you think there's a possibility that diplomatic relations will be broken with the U.S. and Russia? I may be one of the few people that thinks that that should have happened long ago. Um, uh -huh. I, I, you know, it, it's unacceptable to call Putin a war criminal or a thug, but it's acceptable to bomb maternity hospitals today, buses of children leaving in a humanitarian corridor from Mariupol in the southeast. It's acceptable to bomb nuclear reactor plants. It's acceptable to throw grenades to people on the street as they walk by, to shoot people waiting in line for bread. Sorry, there's just no comparison in my mind, none at all. And what do you understand about the stalled invasion? It's almost, what, almost a month into this war, and the impression I get is that one of the reasons it may well be stalled, apart from the bravery of the Ukrainian soldiers is the fact that the morale amongst the Russians must be poor because they've been lied to. They obviously, because they have, it's a mafia state and Putin put his, his chef, Prigozhin, in charge of military logistics and supplying food. And of course, you know, in a mafia state, Prigozhin pockets half of the money. So these soldiers aren't even getting fed. Is that a factor here? Do you think that the Russians could literally grind to a halt? Or are they just because Putin is somebody that's never, as far as I can see, ever retreated or retracted anything, he will just continue to pound Ukraine? So, first of all, I don't look at the war as being stalled. Uh, as I said, they're using missiles now from the Caspian Sea, 
above and beyond the Black Sunnais, obviously. They've hit uh, as far northwest in Berlin, um, near the Polish border. I, I, I don't look at it as stalled. I think it hasn't worked out the way they expected for certain. They expected this to be a three-day war. They expected to be greeted with flowers. Uh, they expected to uh, take over the capital, Kiev, uh, within days. That's par partly because of, as you said, Ukraine's uh, courage, fierceness, and the fact that we're defending our homeland. It's ex existential for Ukrainians. But it's as much the Russian not understanding, Putin not understanding who Ukrainians are. This really is at the core of his invasion and his uh, failures in this invasion so far. He assumes, he defines Ukrainians as something that they are not. He defines them as, uh, as, as you know, not existing as a culture, as a, as a nation, as a, as a people, when they do exist. And he, he misunderstands them from day one through you know the end of this four weeks. Certainly his his military seems less prepared, um, less trained. Uh, seem, it seems that some of the equipment seems out of date and in poor repair, all because of potentially corruption in uh, purchasing and, and procurement. But I don't believe this will change his uh, strategy. It, it, it means that he'll use missiles and bombs. Um, it means that he is seeking out uh, foreign soldiers, whether it's Hezbollah or Syrians, to join uh, the Russian side. It means that he's going to probably do a new conscription across Russia. Um, it, it, just, it just means a different set of tactics. I think his strategy, which is extermination of the Ukrainian people, uh, remains unfortunately and sadly the same. So when you talk about the extermination of the Ukrainian people, that brings up Stalin obviously, and apparently Putin hates Lenin but uh, loves Stalin. Is that really the mindset that Putin thinks of the Ukrainians as kulaks, as peasants, that he doesn't, he can't stand the idea that they have a thriving democracy and a growing prosperity right next door to his kleptocracy? I think there's a whole variety of things here, including what you've described. I, I don't think he he uses the terminology, thinks of them as kulaks or peasants, but certainly that they are lesser people um, and that their language is a lesser, it's a dialect and their culture is a lesser one. He he operates under a mythology of Kyiv being uh, the heart of Russia um, because of our history where in you know the 10th century, the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, um, Prince Vladimir, you mean? Prince Vladimir, and, and even before Prince Vladimir, the rulers of Kiev in Rus um, really were extraordinarily strong in Europe up and through 1240 when the Tatars invaded and burned it, raised it to the ground, after which Muscovy appears on a map, the Principality of Muscovy, which becomes the center of the future of Russia. And he, he, he draws his myth, he builds his myth on the capital city of Kyiv as if that is the origin of his state. When uh, Although there's a shared history in terms of Slavs, it's not the origin of Muscovy. Muscovy was born in Muscovy. Um, I think that in, he, there is an important element that you raise, which is he cannot stand a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, uh, free uh, speech free country on his border, especially one that is, as, as, as he believes, you know, Slavic and part of his 
his domain. And so the fact that Ukraine has, even with the revolutions and even with uh, you know, the COVID pandemic, has continued to prosper and grow and strengthen each year, year on year. I think he, he combined uh, you know, his fear of Ukraine's strength with what he believed was the Western weakness. He believed that you know, the United States post-January 6th and Europe post-Brexit and the United States post-Afghanistan, that we were all too weak to stand together, to unite and to uh, stand up against him. Um, he was wrong on all accounts. So just in closing then, Natalie Dresko, given his mindset about Kiev in his distorted historical vision, that surely indicates that now under siege, he doesn't want to give it up. I mean, how do you bridge this gap where you've got President Zelensky clearly wanting peace? In fact, he, in his speech to the Congress, he called on President Biden to be the world's leader of peace. And you've got this other guy who's got this determination based upon his view of history and the fact that there's no history of him backing down. Is there anybody, I know Senator Graham got into trouble for suggesting that somebody should take him out, but as far as I can tell, is that the only hope that we have? I mean, the world has been afflicted by one-man dictators like Hitler, like Stalin, like Mao, and here's another one, literally threatening the entire world with nuclear weapons. Is there anybody in amongst the Siloviki, the, the, his circle, that can do something? Because I don't see an alternative here. You know, I don't know about his inner circle. What I will say is that I'm certain that this has to be the defeat of Putin. How that occurs, I think there are multiple options, and I think some of them will potentially surprise us. I've lived through multiple revolutions. They're very unpredictable. Um, I don't know what will happen in Russia, and I don't know what could cause a change, either amongst his inner circle or amongst the people. I pray for that change, and I think we in the West need to use all of the tools that we have available to try and press for change and press him to make a decision, a different decision, or press for a, a change in Russia. I think Ukraine, Ukraine's focus is on defeating him right now. And that means supporting Ukraine with as much military su support, in particular air defense, as is possible. Well, Natalie Jureska, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Natalie Jureska, who's had a distinguished international career in public service and private industry with over 25 years of successful management experience in government and business. She served as the Minister of Finance of Ukraine from 2014 to 2016 and previously served in the United States State Department as a chief of the economic section of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine from 1992 to 1995, where she was responsible for building new economic relationships between the United States and the newly independent Ukraine. We can take a brief station break about examining the role of religion in Russia's war against Ukraine following the recent split between the Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox churches.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Burgess, who teaches at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, a Fulbright Scholar to Russia in 2011 and again in 2018 to 2019. He has traveled extensively within Russia, lived in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and has made pilgrimage to some of Russian Orthodoxy's most important monasteries, parishes, and holy sites. And he's the author of a number of books, including Holy Rus, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy in the New Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Burgess. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there have been about 280 Russian Orthodox priests and church officials around the world. They've signed an open letter opposing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But, of course, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, he is a close ally of President Putin and... He basically, you know, ever since the war began, he's declined to condemn the Kremlin's invasion. And he's referred to Russia's opponents in Ukraine as evil forces. And then uh, just last Sunday, he also said that gay pride parades organized in the West were part of the reason for the war in Ukraine. And uh, there was a BBC report some time back where they're interviewing a, a... pro-Russian separatists fighting in the Donbass, and they ask him why is he fighting his fellow Ukrainians, and he said, because the Ukrainian government wants me to marry a man. So what's going on there with this patriarch Kirill, the head of the Orthodox Church? Is he as reactionary as he appears to be? You know, the, the patriarch Kirill... Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church has uh, for many years wanted to defend what he sees to be traditional Russian values. So uh, for him, that means traditional sexual values. It means uh, restrictions on abortion. Of course, uh, this is a position that religious people in other parts of the world have taken. So Kirill is not alone in doing this, and certainly he has drawn on this rhetoric as he's talked about the conflict in Ukraine. Well, if I've described him being reactionary, then if he supports what Putin is doing in Ukraine, is he therefore a a nationalist? Orthodoxy in Russia, as, as orthodoxy is in many countries, does have a national cultural component. So many Russians don't attend church. They would not be able to tell you what they believe, but they still would regard themselves as Orthodox. They would affiliate with the Orthodox Church. They would say that they respect the church and respect the patriarch. And um, therefore, religion plays this role as a cultural identifier as something that people use to say, this is what makes me Russian in this case, or a Ukrainian might say orthodoxy is what helps to make me Ukrainian. That's just tends to be the pattern with orthodoxy. And in fact, it's a pattern with many churches throughout the world that they have some kind of identification with national identity. 
But apparently, Patriarch Kirill shares Putin's vision of Ruski Mir, or Russian world, meaning that anybody who's Russian living anywhere is a part of Russia. And that, of course, makes the Baltic states and others nervous, and particularly now that Putin has invaded Ukraine. I mean, has there been any reaction from the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church to the letter from the 280 Russian Orthodox priests around the world who have appalled at what's happening in Ukraine and have said in their letter that eternal torment awaits those who gave murderous orders. No, the the patriarch is not apt to respond formally to that letter. The Russian Orthodox Church itself um, within Russia probably has more than 15,000 clergy, so 280 out of 15,000 is is quite quite small, and it's significant, of course, that these uh, priests have risked speaking out. But um, it's hard to know how widely their position would be shared within Russia. So let's talk about the split between the Orthodox Church in Russia and the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, and, and how much is that a part of this conflict or a subtext uh, or maybe more because uh, Putin did bring it up on the eve of the war that he was defending his co-religionists. Yes, yes. Well, the situation of orthodoxy in Ukraine is quite complicated and it's been complicated for a long time. But let's put it as simply as we can. During the days of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, there was one Russian Orthodox Church based in Moscow that included Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and other countries. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Ukraine became independent. And at that time, there were some Ukrainian Orthodox who wanted to have their own national Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They uh, did form a group. They broke off from Moscow for many years. They were not formally recognized by the other world Orthodox churches. But in 2019, the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew in Istanbul, Constantinople, recognized this independent Orthodox Church of Ukraine. So that introduced a formal split into the Orthodox churches in Ukraine, some that associated with this new church under a leader in Kiev, and others that remained loyal to the Moscow Patriarchate. And now, with the war in Ukraine, especially those churches that have affiliated with the Moscow Patriarchate, find themselves in a very awkward position. They're regarded with great suspicion as being representatives of Russia rather than Ukraine. However, the head of these Moscow Patriarchate churches in Ukraine, his name is Metropolitan Anufri, he uh, from the first spoke out very strongly against the war and called on President Putin to cease hostilities. So that's where the strongest condemnation of the war has come from Moscow Patriarchate churches, not from 
Patriarch Kirill in Moscow, but from his representative in Ukraine, Metropolitan Anufri. And again, I'm speaking with John Burgess, who teaches at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Russia in 2011 and again in 2018 to 2019. And he's traveled extensively within Russia, lived in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and has made pilgrimage to some of Russian Orthodoxy's most important monasteries, parishes, and holy sites. And he's the author of a number of books, including Holy Rus, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy in the New Russia. And you mentioned the Patriarch of Constantinople, Bartholomew. He, along with Pope Francis, on Sunday issued a condemnation of Russia's invasion, saying that the unacceptable armed aggression must stop. And then earlier, Bartholomew had said that Putin has committed, quote, a great injustice by going to war against his co-religionist, and he has earned the hatred of the world. Does that uh, fall on deaf ears in the Kremlin, John? Well, I'm afraid I I don't belong to the inner circles of President Putin. But um, I think that, of course, the the world reaction uh, is heard within Russia. And probably the, the most important thing to remember is that within the Russian Orthodox Church, there is a diversity of opinion. You mentioned the priests who have signed the petition. I noted that we don't know how representative they are, but we can be sure that within the church in Russia, there are people really struggling and really uh, quite troubled, quite upset uh, by what has occurred in Ukraine. So it's going to take some time to sort out these different religious voices to know uh, which will prevail, what exactly is going on within the Russian Orthodox Church. As I mentioned, to me, the most interesting developments are within Ukraine itself, where the Moscow Patriarchate churches have spoken out strongly and directly with clear language about the invasion. And and these, uh, again, are churches that formally belong under Patriarch Kirill, but have taken a different position. Well, indeed, the Metropolitan Anufri that you mentioned, he compared the war to the sin of Cain. Obviously, Cain slew Abel, right? So that yes. really gets to the point. So let's talk a little bit yes, about... He, he, he did that immediately after the invasion. Uh, there was no hesitation, so that was quite significant. But, of course, on the other side, as we've made clear, Putin uses religion as a justification. And uh, in a February 21 speech, just before the invasion, Putin claimed that uh, Kiev was preparing the destruction of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the uh, Moscow Patriarchy. So this is not a religious war. Is that your opinion? Because there seems to have, have at least a component there. I would not call it a religious war. I I think the patriarch in Moscow would like to frame it as a kind of culture's war. And he draws on certain religious motifs in that respect. But most Ukrainians, most Russians are not churchgoers. It's estimated that in Moscow, 
on a typical Sunday, less than 1% of the population is in church. So as I indicated earlier, I think religion is more a cultural identifier, a way of saying what makes me distinctive as a Russian, or for that matter, Ukrainians who are Orthodox would also see Orthodoxy part, as part of their national cultural identity, but not directly fueling the conflict. But it does seem that, you know, the Russian position in the world and, uh, and Russian identity is tied up in the church, and Putin and the Patriarch Kirill have helped sort of galvanize the Russian people under the control of of Putin, who is clearly, I mean, we haven't had a situation where one man is threatening the whole world and threatening to use nuclear weapons. The, the last time we had one man threatening the world, I mean, we've, we've had, you know, examples of Hitler, Stalin, Mao, but this is really a horrendously dangerous and, and horrifying situation as, as you watch a country murdered before your eyes and the people killed and maimed and driven out in what, at least 10 million refugees now and growing. But have they tried to sort of control and tie peoples of independent nations such as Ukraine and Russia by pushing this notion of a unified Russian Orthodox Church to deny any religious diversity? Is that what's been going on? I would say that this is a, a long historical motif within Russia, that there's a special relationship between Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians. So this, this well predates uh, Patriarch Kirill or President Putin. You could read the novels of Dostoevsky. You could uh, you know, Gogol, the great Russian author was a Ukrainian. There, there's always been a special relationship. But yes, how do we sort it out now? Uh, and this is precisely what the war is about in many ways. What is Ukrainian identity? And of course, Ukrainians who want their self-determination and uh, see themselves as an independent nation, all of this is uh, part of the tragedy of what's occurring. So your book, Holy Rus, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy in the New Russia, when you talk about Holy Rus, that goes back to the medieval kingdom of uh, Kivan Rus to the 12th century with, with Prince Vladimir or Vladimir in Ukrainian, who, I guess, began the transition from uh, paganism to Christianity. And he was baptized in Crimea and adopted orthodoxy as an official religion in the 10th century. And in 2014, yep. when Putin invaded and seized Crimea, he used uh, the example of Prince Vladimir as an example of why he seized this land, which Putin calls sacred to Russia. So, mm -hmm. so Putin, I think, is framing himself as the true heir to Rus. And the Ukrainians, on the other hand, believe that they uh, um, yes. more legitimate yep. have a more legitimate claim to being the heirs of Rus. Well, that's, that's exactly right. We have dueling histories here. We have two ways of telling history since Prince Vladimir's uh, baptism in 988, as you pointed out, in what is now Crimea, and then he had his people baptized in the Dnieper River, which flows through Kiev. 
So, yes, uh, you know, and, and history is very important to President Putin. When he made his address to the nation on television just prior to the invasion, he uh, laid out a long historical narrative. So you're right. The way people tell history is a way of saying what matters today, who we are, who has inherited this uh, heritage from 988. You're absolutely right. Well, just in closing, John, is there a way out? Can religion, instead of dividing, and we didn't even get into the divisions with the, in the West with the Catholic Church, is always, they've always been persecuted by the Tsars and, and by the communists. But is there a way to turn religion around and not have it, you know, the sort of onward Christian soldiers version of religion, but bringing yes, back yeah, well, Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace. Right, right. You know, uh, religion can be used to divide, but religion has deep, deep resources for unifying people. One of the remarkable things about orthodoxy is that whether you're in Ukraine or Russia or Serbia or the United States, the form of worship, the liturgy on a Sunday morning is practically identical. And when one enters into that world of worship and stands before the icons and smells the incense, hears the chanting, you're really being given a vision of heaven on earth. Now, of all things that ought to unite people and bring them together, it's this transcendent vision of something beautiful or something unifying. And it, it's tragic. It's just terrible when something that precious then is used for narrow political purposes. So this has to be my hope at any rate as one who teaches theology that these resources within orthodoxy itself can ultimately contribute to a way for Ukrainians and Russians to live together. Well, John Burgess, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Good to talk. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with John Burgess, who teaches at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was a Fulbright Scholar to Russia in 2011 and again in 2018 to 2019, and has traveled extensively within Russia, lived in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and has made pilgrimage to some of Russian Orthodoxy's most important monasteries, parishes, and holy sites. And he's the author of a number of books, including Holy Rus, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy in the New Russia. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the extent to which the confiscation of Russia's $630 billion in reserves by the Biden administration might undermine the U.S. advantage of having the dollar as the global reserve currency. Working for the church while your family dies You take what they give you and you keep it inside Every spark of friendship and love will die without a home. Hear the soldier groan, glad alone. I can taste the fear. Lift me up and take me out of here. Don't want to fight. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Matthew Klein, the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. He was previously the economics commentator at Barron's and has also written for the Financial Times, Bloomberg View, and The Economist. And he's the co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. And his latest articles at The Overshoot uh, include... Mapping Banks, Russians, and Ukrainian Exposure, and the Implications of Unrestricted Financial Warfare. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Klein. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And at the moment, oil prices are high, and uh, they've risen and gone down, but they're still incredibly high. So oil is up, the dollar's down, and crypto's up. Is that is that a facile, broad view of trends? Well, since the invasion began, uh, cryptocurrencies are down, I believe. But yes, the oil price has certainly increased uh, relative to where it was uh, earlier in February. That's for sure. And the dollar's down, right? Well, it depends relative to what. It's it's up against um, most other major currencies, uh, most such as the, uh, the euro and, and um, uh, obviously the ruble. I think it's mostly flat against the uh, yen and the yuan. I guess on the uh, on a trade weight basis, I can I can look, but I, I think it's probably either flat or slightly up. Uh, against other other currencies. So the fact that the Biden administration were able to neutralize the 630 billion in foreign reserves that Putin had, I, I imagine most of it in dollars, and that was his rainy day fund to ride out sanctions, etc. Did we cross a line, or the U.S. cross a line there? Because I I'm assuming that if you can disappear somebody's dollar holdings, then a lot of people around the world in various countries might think to themselves, well, you're not safe being in dollars. Is that happening out there or is that something I'm imagining? That that very well could be the case. I think it's also worth noting, though, that this was not a unilateral U.S. decision, that this was also something that the Europeans agreed to, that the Japanese agreed to. And I think that's that really magnifies the power of, of the financial sanctions that we imposed. I, you know, the Russian case is really interesting because a few years ago, the Russian central bank rather ostentatiously tried to reduce its dollar exposure after the sanctions that were put in place in 2014 when they first uh, attacked Ukraine. And they did that by shifting uh, shifting some reserves into yen, shifting uh, more into euros, adding exposure to Chinese yuan. Um, at the end of the day, that didn't really help very much because with the exception of China, all of the other central banks and other institutions where they've, they've held the reserves have, have been just as punitive as the United States in terms of sanctioning the Central Bank of Russia. And so this isn't necessarily so much a dollar-specific story as a how comfortable would you be holding reserves anywhere outside of your own country? Uh, I think that I think could have a lot of interesting implications. But Matthew Klein, much is being made of uh, recent reports that Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia, has has met with the Chinese and decided to sell Saudi oil to China in in yuan, when in fact oil has also been pegged to the dollar. How significant is that? I don't think that's actually very significant. Um, and there are a couple of reasons. One is that in practice, you know, if, if China could always pay, it doesn't change the price of oil for Chinese buyers. It just changes the currency they use to, to buy it. And China doesn't have any problem getting dollars. The other thing that I think is interesting here is that from the Saudi perspective, they're slightly potentially worse off at a, at a very small degree insofar as 
Saudi Arabia has more of a need for dollars than it does for yuan. They they have a large trade surplus with China, which means that they get paid in yuan. They have to buy and to get paid in yuan. They have to buy Chinese assets. Whereas with the United States, they actually run a trade deficit. So um, getting dollars from non-U.S. payers is actually helpful for them uh, to cover the difference. So I mean, in practice, that's not a huge deal. But I, I think really this is this is a lot of potential to be overstated. The the currency in which um, commodities are denominated isn't uh, particularly important in terms of the prices that the ultimate buyers and sellers um, face. But what is clear, though, is that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is not taking phone calls from uh, Biden, nor is Mohammed bin Zayed in the, in the Emirates. So what's happening to U.S. leverage over the price of oil? I mean, or I guess another way to put it is the Saudis have always been willing to help out American presidents to lower the price of oil because they have the their swing producers. Something has changed there, surely. Uh, maybe, although I, this was just today, it looks like that um, the U.S. is... I, I think part of the issue there with the Saudis, I don't know as much about the Emirates situation, is that there was you know some disagreement about the situation in Yemen. It looks as if today, actually, the U.S. is going to be sending some armaments to Saudi Arabia that they'd paid for and had not received delivery on. That might affect things. I, I think also... It's worth pointing out that the the nature of the uh, Gulf Arabian willingness to lower oil prices when asked um, is not been unconditional. They've actually been pretty unhelpful in sort of key junctures, such as you know 2007, 2008, when the price is very high. Um, they also deliberately tried to undermine U.S. domestic shale oil production twice in the past five years, bankrupting a lot of U.S. companies and I think contributing to the relatively slow recovery in U.S. oil production over the past 12 months or so. So it's not as if this has been a historically beneficial relationship for the United States. It certainly goes through plenty of of uh, rough patches. But I wouldn't be surprised, quite frankly, if given how high oil prices are and also the potential leverage that the U.S. still has to exert if um, we wouldn't see some more production coming from there. I think actually the UAE also said that they would be supportive of increasing the uh, OPEC plus production, although who knows how that plays out in uh, practice with the negotiations they have. And again, I'm speaking with Matthew Klein, the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. He was previously the economics commentator at Barron's and has also written for the Financial Times, Bloomberg View, and The Economist. And he's the co-author of Trade Wars or Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. And his latest articles at The Overshoot include Mapping Banks, Russian and Ukrainian Exposures, and the implications of unrestricted financial warfare. But it seems to be key, uh, I know this is more political than economic, key to uh, the Democrats in 2016 and Biden becoming a lame duck thereafter. If the price of oil seems to be, or the price of gas at the pump, I should say, seems to be really a political hot potato. So is there any way to predict or any sense that you have where we're going to be around election time in terms of the price of gas at the pump? Uh, no, I, I, I do not feel comfortable being able to predict where oil is going to be in uh, November. I mean, I completely agree with you that it is very politically sensitive um, because it's a price that everybody sees all the time and, and literally on billboards everywhere you go in a way that's not necessarily true for other prices. And it's a, and it's an item that people buy at very high frequencies, so they're very sensitive to any changes in that price. Um there are a lot of reasons to imagine why oil prices could theoretically drop from the level that they're at. There's a lot of un, 
there's a lot of spare production capacity, particularly in the United States, that could come online. There's some uh, in the Gulf states. However, we're also seeing, you know, with Russian supply potentially being offline for a lot of places, it's very difficult to say. Another big wild card, of course, is what happens with China's domestic economy and their demand for oil. The, the government's response to the recent Omicron outbreaks in China, which have been quite severe, seems to be you know, an offsetting force uh, pushing down the oil price compared to what we've seen in terms of everything else with Russia. So it's very hard to say how all this is going to add up in the span, you know, in the next eight, nine, ten months. So you, you brought up China, Matthew. There's been pretty acrimonious meetings between the U.S. National Security Advisor and his Chinese counterpart. And then President Biden had, I think, a four to maybe even five hour conversation with Xi Jinping a few days ago. So obviously the duration of that phone call indicates that there was something that they were arguing over. There are reports emerging that China might be helping Russia hide money, and one of the places that's been cited is Belgium's Euroclear Bank. Do you have any um, knowledge of anything that might be going on there in terms of China helping Russia out hiding its money? Yeah, I mean, I've seen those reports as well. And, you know, China itself does have a track record of hiding some of its holdings of dollar assets through uh, Belgian custodians, and including Euroclear, which is which is located in Belgium. However, um, I, I don't know really know how to weigh those against other reports we've seen, which is that actual Chinese banks in terms of dealing with Russian customers have been very reluctant to extend financing. And in fact, you know, when it comes to Russian commodity producers have been relatively ungenerous. Um, and so, you know, I don't, the way I would think about this, and, you know, again, we don't have all the information, but China has a lot more to lose from aligning with Russia right now than it would from not doing so uh that at the end of the day the russian economy is so much smaller and so much less important to china than the combined economic weight of all of the allies you know the us europe japan korea singapore so forth it that you know it doesn't make any sense why any you know certainly any chinese business that's making a decision independently would not have any reason to prefer russia um over over those, you know, the allied democracies. And I, I don't think we've yet seen um, evidence that the Chinese government is really moving in the direction of, of supporting Russia in that kind of crucial way. It's certainly possible they might be doing some things under the table, but, you know, the, the key limitation on Russia at this point is the fact that companies are denying them access to exports of, of crucial technological parts and expertise. And so even if Russia has access to dollars in theory, if the companies that would sell the things that Russia wants to buy are not going to sell them those parts, then, you know, that doesn't really matter. And so that I think is sort of the key question right now. And, and um, you know, I, I, and I don't see yet any kind of clear cut evidence that China is trying to help them. For what it's worth, China was relatively cooperative with U.S. sanctions on other um in the past, when you know whether it's uh, you know Iran and North Korea or so forth, and so they 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 are reluctant to be caught up in that because you know they see kind of the asymmetric costs and benefits. But Xi Jinping is maybe more motivated by politics and by the control of the Communist Party. I mean, he's already doing things in China itself that go against any kind of economic logic, you know, going after entrepreneurs, etc., and shaking down big companies for donations to the Communist Party. 
So are we sure that he's responding to economic realities or is he more focused on political control, which is what he embodies? That's that's a great question. And I mean, we don't really know enough right now to say either way. I mean, I can just all, all I you know can tell you is what we're seeing kind of publicly. And, and right now, it doesn't seem like they've it's certainly they're certainly not doing an obvious tilt um, to support Russia and help Russia get out of any constraints there right now. There may be things going on under the table that we don't know about. Uh, but if that but I don't, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't. As I said, we, we we do have some evidence from past behavior that they don't engage, they don't do things that put them directly opposed to, you know, the combined weight of what the, the current allies. I mean, in, in the past, they might have been trying to sort of play Europe and Japan off against the United States or each other. But when there's this kind of unity across all the major economies, excluding China, I don't, I would I would be surprised if if the Chinese government, even given the the point that the very good point that you make, I'd be very surprised if they decided to uh, line up against that. Well, we do know that commodities are going to be food, particularly, is going to go through the roof because of Ukraine being the breadbasket with the the great sort of black soil in Ukraine and, and Russia as well. Cost of fertilizer, the cost of sunflower oil, all of those things. So as we focus on the cost of oil, the cost of food is actually going to be more impactful, don't you think, particularly yeah, in the I, third world? I, I do think that's right. I mean, they're also R- Russia and, you know, the, 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 there's enormous wheat in particular is, is the thing to worry about on the food side. There's also um, a lot of industrial metals that come out of Russia. Neon, which is used for making uh, microprocessors, is, is, is a major um, export of both Russia and Ukraine. So there are a lot of potential issues there. That's certainly true. I, I, I'm somewhat optimistic on the food side of things, not because there isn't a potential for huge impact, but because there is a lot of food in storage right now. And so um, normally Russia and Ukraine together account for about 25 to 30% of all the wheat that's imported. So mostly sending it to uh, the Middle East and Africa. That's not going to happen um, for the simple reason that the Black Sea is a war zone right now, and the ports are blocked. So even if there weren't sanctions or anything else, that wheat's just not going to show up. That that's not going to immediately have an impact for a little while because of when, you know, how much wheat was already exported from the previous harvest year. The the bigger issue is going to be, you know, when they start doing the harvest for um, the wheat they planted last fall. That's going to be over the summer, and then, uh, you know, that might not even be possible in Ukraine if the, if the fields are being damaged. And then they're going to be doing the, ne- the planting for the following year, starting in this fall. And to the extent that there's limits on uh, all sorts of things, including parts and farm labor and you know transportation, and in the Ukraine, obviously, just the actual damage, that's going to be a real challenge. As I said, the, the, the big thing that we have is an advantage that there is a lot of wheat in storage. Between Europe, the United States, Canada, China has a huge amount of wheat in storage. Um, there's a lot of wheat available, and also in the Middle East and Africa, actually. Um, in North Africa, there's there's a fair amount of wheat in storage. So in theory, if all the major you know producers and consumers, excluding Russia and Ukraine, were able to coordinate, they could at least you know for a couple of years uh, hold off on that. And then if we're really kind of thinking big picture, the U.S. actually – um, could potentially supply more wheat. Um, basically, the U.S. used to produce a lot more wheat than it does now, but over the past 30 years, there was a big shift away from wheat towards corn and soy. That is not 
inevitable. There could that could be changed for you know various reasons. Some of that, a lot of that corn is grown for making ethanol. It's not necessarily clear how useful that is, uh, especially if we're trying to reduce gasoline consumption anyway. So there's potential there to sort of change over those fields. You know, that's a multi-year solution, but in theory, there's definitely is a way to respond to the challenge of of missing wheat. The other things I think, you know, might be harder, but you know, hopefully doable. But yeah, in the short term, absolutely, you're right that the the price spikes. I mean, I think the price of wheat's up, you know, 50% or something compared to where it was before the invasion. So that's going to be very painful for countries and for people who um, really depend on those imports. So even though Russia is what the 11th largest economy, I think below Canada or somewhere around Italy, maybe below Italy, then nevertheless uh, they do supply a quarter of the world's copper, 20% of its wheat natural gas, of course, Europe is dependent upon, to a large extent, nickel and aluminum. Uh, so the prices of those commodities will, will go up, will they not? Uh, probably. I mean, again, like, the the question is, to what extent consumers can adjust, and then other producers can <clears throat> pick up the pace. In general, I would agree that you have a major producer of commodities that no longer is able or willing to export those things. That's going to create um, challenges in terms of the prices. We've already seen them go up. I mean, the question is whether they keep going up or, or you know, whether, you know, that the prices, the price increases we've already seen induce responses elsewhere. Um, it's not as if it's very few situations where that you literally can only get that thing that commodity from a particular place. It's usually that it's just cheaper to get it from that place versus other places. Uh, but we've seen, adaptations before you know over time uh it's definitely possible i think for uh societies to to adjust if they, if they need to it's 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 relatively speaking much better to be a large diversified economy that consumes raw materials and has the option to adjust what you consume through technological innovation and social changes rather than being an economy that depends on exporting raw materials and then you know you're basically at the whims of your your consumers well, just in the last minute then, Matthew Klein, there is a concern that sanctions, uh, you know, we've seen the ruble is tanked and the stock market was closed. The Russian stock market just came back, but very <laughs> little activity. The notion that you could turn Russia into North Korea is a little frightening because they could do a lot more damage than North Korea could do. Are we heading in that direction? Yeah, I think, I mean, we are. I mean, I also think, to be fair, North Korea is capable of doing a tremendous amount of damage if it wants to as well. I mean, they also have nuclear weapons and an enormous conventional um, military force next to populated areas. So I wouldn't underestimate that. Well, um, but Russia's I've, got 5,000 nukes, so... Sure, but I, I mean, if you live in Asia or the West Coast of the United States, that's not a huge consolation. But yes, I mean, yes, uh, uh, Russia is certainly larger um, and there are a lot more people. So in terms of the cost of the civilian population of that transformation, it's also bigger for them. Uh, but yeah, it does look like that's where we're going. I mean, they've essentially been cut off. I mean, they chose, this was a choice that the government made, um, but essentially because of their invasion of Ukraine are being cut off from the rest of the world and become a pariah state. And so the the outcome of that is going, there are not a lot of analogies we have to countries that have, have chosen that route and have been cut off in that way, other than really North Korea, especially ones that are as heavily armed as Russia is. So uh, it's certainly not a good outcome for the world, and uh, I certainly wish that you know the Russian government hadn't made the choices that it did to bring us to this point. But as we speak, of course, it's backfiring in a sense in Russia itself. Patriotism is up, Putin's popularity is up, 
uh, the Russian people, when they see McDonald's closing down, it reinforces the idea that the West is out to get them. So to some extent, uh, the sanctions are working in Putin's favor. I mean, I have no idea how we can judge what Russian popular opinion is actually saying right now. This is not a free society. Mm-hmm. Of, I mean, also worth pointing out that a lot of people are emigrating rapidly uh, and have been um, to... Right, the brain so drain. Yeah. Right. Um, or just, just a drain uh, <laughs> of, all, of all sorts of people. So I, 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 I would be very skeptical to say this is actually good for Russia. It might be good for people with a very particular vision of what they want Russian society to look like, but it's definitely not something that I think is... Um, no, I, I, I was Russia meaning better. it to say that it was good for Putin, which is not good uh, for the, well, the world. On the <laughs> other hand, yeah, it definitely is harming their ability to actually wage war. Uh, um, war. So uh, that's going to be, I mean, their, their ability to get military equipment um, and so forth. I mean, they depend on spare parts and, and from a lot of the countries that have sanctioned them. So it's not clear. You know, their, their, their ability to replace the losses they've already in, incurred in Ukraine, I think, is going to be very, very, challenge, very limited, um, even if they were to get explicit Chinese support, which it doesn't seem like they are. So in that case, um, the sanctions are working uh, quite well. Well, Matthew Klein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Klein, who's the founder and publisher of The Overshoot, a premium subscription research service focused on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. He was previously the economics commentator at Barron's and has also written for the Financial Times, Bloomberg View, and The Economist. And he's the co-author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. And his latest articles at The Overshoot include Mapping Banks, Russian and Ukrainian Exposures, and the implications of unrestricted financial warfare. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past